Welcome to the Otherwise Podcast, Season 3. I'm your host, Casey Tigreth. I'm an author, pastor, and spiritual director. I grew up in the South. If you don't know this about me, I grew up in Southern West Virginia. And there's a lot of things I love about where I grew up. There's a lot of things that uh, I gained from where I grew up. The ability to learn how to slow down. A little bit of an accent when I need it. The ability to appreciate things like biscuits and gravy. Can I get a witness for the biscuits and gravy? But the other thing that I've learned, because sometimes when you are in something, you don't really realize what's going on all the time, especially as a child. But as an adult, and as I look back, I've also seen some things that I gained from that culture that I don't want anymore. And one of them is the fact that the culture I grew up in, the jokes I heard, some of the jokes I told, some of the beliefs I held, were deeply deeply offensive and deeply inaccurate towards people of color. My story had no space for the experience of black folks. And so that's why I'm so grateful for the conversation I was able to have with our guest today, Natasha Sistrunk Robinson. Natasha has worked in several different areas in mentoring, discipleship, and leadership development. And in in her history, she also has military service as a graduate of the Naval Academy and an officer in the Marines. She brings a whole host of different perspectives and ideas to the discussion of what about church? What about race? How do we begin to mend some of the broken places in the interactions in people of faith and people of color. In her book, A Sojourner's Truth, that we'll be talking about, she brings together her own personal story with the story of the scriptures, specifically of Exodus and of Moses, and also with the story of being a black person in the United States of America. I was challenged and I was encouraged, and I've got a bunch of new questions because of this conversation. I hope you will as well. So. Without further ado, my friend, Natasha Sistrunk Robinson. Natasha, thank you for taking the time to talk this morning. Thank you. I'm so glad to do it. Thank you for having me. Yeah. And we met briefly at the Apprentice Gathering last year in yep. Wichita, technically last year. It's yep. last year in digits, not in actual months. But, right. right. Um, it seems it will seem like a long time either way. But uh, it was so good to hear your talk at that conference. And that's one of the reasons that I thought you'd be a great guest to have, just because I, there are people in the listening audience who they're having the same conversations that you brought to the table. And so uh, I'll, pu- I'll post a link to that YouTube video too, because I think that's that's really important for them to hear. Uh, but I always start at the same place. So I'd like to start there with you, which is if you were going to begin to define the word wisdom, where would you start? <laughs> yeah, um, I, I think, you know, I go back to the word a lot, right? And uh, the fear of the Lord is beginning of wisdom. <laughs> um, and the fear being reverence, um, honor, respect, um, acknowledgement of of the Lord, because if we to, to me that's that's anchoring, um, and if we don't have that, then everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. So, with anything, when you talk about, uh, we always fear the Lord. And that's the some of the language that people have used in the past. We always do that from a particular perspective, or vantage point, or history. So, how does your personal history influence how you approach that that idea of wisdom? What is, in other words, what has your story up to this point taught you? Yeah. How, what kind of gifts of wisdom has it given you? I, I think um, I'm I'm a person. I'm like if you tell me the stove is hot, I'm not the person. Let me touch it and try it out. And so I spent a lot of time, um, and I've always been this way, seeking um, wisdom, wise counsel, listening well to elders. Um, Even as a child, I I was that way. Um, And, you know, I was the one, I I remember my 11th grade year of high school, I lived with my grandparents, my maternal grandparents for a year. And I would just um, sit in a chair next to my grandfather um, to watch the news, not because I cared about the news, didn't care about politics. I just wanted to be close to him, you know? 
And so, um, so I've always been that way. And I, so I value um, elders and wise counsel of older people. I believe that, that there is wisdom that comes with age. Um, but I also uh, get to observe people um, and, the, and the choices that they make and the consequences of those, of those choices. And I really am a person, you know, the whole saying, there but for the grace of God goes I. So I know when I was younger um, and was thinking as a child and did childish things that the, the Lord's grace covered me in those things. Um, and um, so I was able to make choices just in, in life because I didn't, when I looked at it and say, okay, is this a consequence that I want in my life? Um, a lot of times that's been the desire. So, so for example, I would say something like alcohol, right? Like I think um, people socially drinking is, is certainly not a problem. I don't because I have alcoholics in my family. And so um, I don't think really anybody starts to drinking and say, I'm going to become an alcoholic, <laughs> right? And so um, because I've seen the negative consequences of that, um, of, of drug and alcohol addiction, even some leading to death, um, I just don't touch the stuff. You know, so when people were experimenting and, and trying it out, I just, that's not something I wanted to do. Um, and so that's, for me, it's just kind of life experience and observation, um, taking wise counsel from, from older people, um, and, and then learning the word. Yeah. So you, you have some, in your book, Sojourner's Truth, you, you have some pieces that build what you're talking about so we kind of move from the theoretical to the practical whether it's the influence of your family Mm -hmm. uh you served in the military for a while talk talk about that journey how did you end up in the naval academy and in the in active Mm -hmm. military service yeah so i come from a patriotic family my mother um served in the army she was a typist (laughs) and that's what women could do then but she did serve in the army for a few years her her dad, um, my maternal grandfather, was a uh, uh, army vet. He's a World War II veteran. Um, her brother uh, did a career in the army, and so I do come from a patriotic family. Um, on my dad's side, my dad who raised me, uh, several of my family members, um, my peers, actually my cousins, uh, we all a lot of them serve in different branches of, of the military, um, and so that was part of it. I mean, I, we just kind of had a, a idea of service and um, love of country, but I also think. Uh, for us as African-Americans growing up in the South, there was some, you know, it wasn't really spoken. It was just more understood that this was a good career uh, path or opportunity um, and that it was stable. Um, and I think stability, especially for people of color, when you're coming from a place where you don't have a lot of means, um, stability is, is a really good thing. And so I was in um, high school. Uh, well, I got backtrack one. When I was in sixth grade, I remember my parents saying to me, they said, you know, Natasha, we we really uh, believe you can go to college. We want you to go to college. Um, we don't have the money to pay for it. We don't have to figure that out in so many words. That's what they told me. And I said, okay. Um, and because I believe, because of what they told me, that I had the ability and I could do it. And and um, and we was going to find a way to pay for it. And so in sixth grade, I started making decisions um, athletically, um, academically. Um, uh, my involvement in escrow activities um, were very intentional in I'm doing things. I did it because I love it. I, I will say that. But I also did it because I was looking for opportunities that would create um, space for me to get full scholarships. And so by the time I graduated high school, I had um, more than $500,000 in scholarship money um, and, and a couple, a few full rides to colleges, the Naval Academy being one of them. So the Naval Academy recruited me to run track initially. Um, in my junior year of high school, so I was a very competitive track athlete, and um, I had been recruited by several colleges. I was state champion, um, and my school track team was state champion, but I also was state champion in my specialty again. And so um, they sort of recruited me in my junior year, and I was ignorant. I didn't know the difference between being enlisted and an officer. And so the only military people I, I saw at the time were the recruiters coming to high school to recruit kids to enlist. Um, during lunchtime, and they were coming to get the kids that weren't on the honor roll. And so I was like, well, I'm not doing that. <laughs> um, and so I, I just didn't understand the difference. And I had never heard of the Naval Academy, didn't know what they did. I just saw people in uniforms. I'm like, I'm not doing that. So I was throwing that paper away for a year. And unbeknownst to me, because I was not living with my parents, um, the coach continued to woo my mother. 
And so she was sending my mother notes and calling my mother and checking in and she acted very concerned. And by the time I got to second semester of my senior year, which is normally when most people have been accepted by now, the competitive people have been accepted. My mother said to me, um, my guidance counselor said to me, both of them African-American, they said, you should just apply to keep your options open. But I had uh, um, one of my teachers who was a white man who taught me Western civilization in ninth grade. We developed develop a great relationship and I loved him and respected him. And, and that feeling was mutual. And he said to me, he said um, some, uh, something online, sweetheart, um, you've done very well here. My school was like 98, 99% black African-American. So you've done very well here. And he said, um, but this is not the real world. He said, um, you need to go and you need to compete in the real world. He said, because I believe you can fly with the best of them. And um, so between those three people in particular, um, I applied just to keep my options open. And somewhere between that application and my getting an acceptance letter, I had already decided that once I started doing some more research, having those conversations with people that love me, um, if I got accepted, I would go. And part of that decision uh, also was just a very practical one. So my parents didn't have a lot of money. I was the oldest of three children. I wanted to get myself off their books. And so um, when I left, I intended to leave. I intended to take care of myself. I had no intention of coming back home. And so um, I liked that they were going to give me a stipend. I liked that the education was free. I liked that they were going to give me a career and not just a job. And that career was going to pay well. So that's all, all of that in addition to the patriotic stuff. And so um, that was really a, a part of it for me. It was, it was a choice to get a great education um, and for, for financial um, independence. So you, you chose that and you chose it out of your own um, desires. And also uh, it sounds like a, there was almost a calling to it. Yeah. Yeah, there was a, a a drawing that was beyond just what you wanted. I mean, it was made up of different factors, of family yes. factors. Yes. H- how did faith play into that particular decision? Yeah, I, I grew up in a Christian home, um, a Christian family. You know, um, people practice that in different ways, but like Jesus was always on the tongue, and um, church was Sunday, and you know, sun, summers were for vacation Bible school and, and during the week is, is Bible study and choir rehearsal. And so um, that was a part of life. But I, I say like church was something we did. And, and when I say we, I mean, not just my immediate family, but my extended family. I did see, especially um, by the time I went to high school, my mother was, was changing. Um, and she was always a quote unquote good person, but she was changing. Um, I, I saw that change happening in her, especially as I got into high school. Um, regarding her faith and so when she decided uh, we grew up Methodist and um, when they moved to Columbia South Carolina which was only 45 minutes from my hometown and that was going into my junior year so my dad could have better work opportunities um she decided she was somewhere between there she decided we were, she was gonna get baptized again um rededicate her life to the Lord and so I think I always tell people it's like Lydia it's like um, Sally, my mother's name, Sally, and her whole household got saved. You know, so, like, you know, she's like, I'm going to get baptized, and we all getting baptized. And so, you know, and that's what we all did. We like everybody went, you know, and put on our white robes, and you know, we black, so we had to wear our swim caps to cover our hair, and you know, they had the whole towels, and we all got our big King James Bible and you know, a certificate, and that's the first Bible I read through, you know, cover to cover. Um, and so I say to people when I went off to college and when I really dedicated my life to the Lord, which is when I went off to college, um, <clears throat> I had enough sense to know Jesus was the one to call on when I was in trouble. That's enough. That's the sense I had. I didn't have much more than that, but I had enough sense to know that. <laughs> so, um, and so I think when I, when I got the opportunity to go to the Naval Academy, um, I, even as a young person, I had a certain sense of self-awareness. Um, in, in, in addition to the faith, but maybe that prompted the faith. And so my self-awareness was, I was always like a work hard, play hard type of person. Um, so I had, for example, a full scholarship to an HBCU that was all, it was a great school, but it's also known as a party school. I didn't trust myself not to party my way through school and, you know, make maybe bad decisions, you know? And so, um, 
part of that Naval Academy was, a, you know, really a protection, a, a covering, like, you don't have time to party. Like, who has time to party? <laughs> and so I think, you know, all of that. And so um, I, I define it as a book, in the book a little bit, as my kind of burning bush um, experience. It wasn't as dramatic as Moses's, but it was very clear that um, this choice, especially once I went through it and finished it, that that decision to go to that school um, changed the trajectory of my life. With that in mind, it's interesting to me, and some people will catch it when they see the title of your book. It, It seems to me like the book itself, and especially the title, is a almost a summary of the formation of you up to this point, because mm. after the military, uh, your work has been largely in speaking and leadership development and mentoring and those, those really critical areas. Mm. But to use the name of a famous 18th, 19th century abolitionist and women's rights advocate, Sojourner Truth, as mm. part of the title, there's something about that to me that speaks to your formation. Is that, is that where that was coming from? Well, um, <laughs> I'm laughing not at your question, but I'm laughing at just the conversations in my mind as a result of the question. Um, and so I just think about, and I love IVP, God bless them, but I had some very poor titles presented to me for the book. I'm like, no, we're not going to do those. That those That's not really what I'm trying to say and what I'm trying to get across. <laughs> and so, um, you know, really the title came about with me getting with a good friend who's also an IVP author, um, Amina Brown Owen, um, spoken word poet. Um, you know, and I call her, I'm like, girl, these titles are not going to work. I'm like, what are we going to do? <laughs> so, you know, we started wordsmithing, really. And so, um, and she's a master of words in um, you know, we just wordsmith, and and so just kind of as a result of that conversation, you know, I got off the phone with her. We didn't quite have it, um, and I, I you know, I was kind of online looking through some things, and I was like, oh, I got it, <laughs> right? And so, and I, and so I presented the Sojourner Truth um, as an option of you know maybe one or uh, two or three options, um, but I, but I landed on that, and I was like, there's some, there's some, um, you know, what I try to do with the book was to share my personal journey in connection to the faith journey, like God's bigger, like meta narrative, right? Of um, his redemptive story um, in light of the story of African-Americans um, in this country or African-American history. And so I think Sojourner Truth embodies that in a very deep way. Um, and uh, and I also think there's some irony about um, like who has the power to tell a story. And so I think what most people know her for, for example, would be like, ain't I a woman, like that thing. But she never really, historically, she never really said that. Like these were words that were put into her mouth by, um, you know, a white person who, who was uh, journaling, you know, I would say journaling, but really reported it in an article. But she didn't really say that in her speech. And so I think there's something telling about, you know, this dynamic Black woman who loved Jesus, who had a social, political um, impact, um, who came from nothing. I mean, she was a slave. Um, but what we most know her for is, is the story that white people have told about her. Um, even when you think about her own narrative, it's a narrative that she spoke to someone else, but she never learned how to read or write. And so um, a privilege I have is I am literate, right? And so not wanting someone else to tell my story. Um, and I think we are deficient in the stories that we hear and know and really understand and sit with by people of color in this country. And so I think uh, with some of the conversations that's happening in the more cultural, so- social, political settings even, that we need to hear more stories from people of color by people of color. <laughs> um, and so I, I thought this was a, a good contribution at a very um, necessary time. You hold the book nicely holds together a view to your past, a view to the American story, um, and the view to the story of faith, and specifically as it's incarnated in the story of Moses. What was it about the Moses narrative that captured this specifically? Why did you Why did you make the choice to step into that particular narrative? think um i mean it, that's kind of done for me right i mean that's that's a part of um i would say the black christian experience like like there's always this understanding of um 
you know, I, I, I just, it's just baffling to me. I just saw the Harriet Tubman movie and, you know, you have people being born into and dying in slavery and yet still having hope, right? And so this hope that they had was, uh, is surely the God who delivered the Israelites out of slavery is the same God that has the ability to deliver us. Even if he does it, he's able. And in God's due time, he will, right? And so, um, so that is very much a deep-seated, rich faith belief of my ancestors that I was conscious of before I started writing this book. And so really, um, so, so me writing that was not something that was new to me. I think it's new to people who are not familiar with that narrative, but it's a narrative that I, I, I understood very deeply before I wrote yeah. And there's, it seems to me there's a formational element in it too, where you talk about, uh, and you use Andy Crouch's quote about the need to hold together authority and vulnerability Yeah, and that that's where real power comes from. And, and I see that in Moses. And then as, as readers, and as I read your story, I saw that in you, there were, mm-hmm. there were moments of real, there are constantly moments of real strength throughout your story, but also moments of just the the doors wide open and everything's on the table uh, mm-hmm. moments of vulnerability right now it feels like as a culture we're not doing well with balancing those two things yeah. Wh- where do you see as a black woman especially where do you see the challenge in that authority vulnerability tension yeah yeah i think um you know, as a person of color, part of part of the reason that it's, it's not, um, the vulnerability specifically is not embraced because I, I don't know if it's ever allowed, right? It's, it, or it's not safe often, right? It, it's just not. And so, and, I, and, you know, I think just personally, I'm a pretty private person anyway. Like I just, the whole idea of you know, social media and platform building is just kind of disgusting to me. <laughs> I, I'm kind of on there because I have to be um, for, for work, but I'm also on there, you know, to share the gospel, right? I, I think that's important. But um, I, you know, even in writing the book, I remember, you know, in editing, you know, I got about halfway through and I just was emotionally drained from the whole thing. And so I, I, <laughs> the first manuscript I submitted to her, um, what happened was there was a lot of me early in the book and, and the, you know, and you read it. So, you know, um, the scripture text was always there. Um, but as I neared to the second half of the book, what happened was the, it, it started to flip. So it was a lot more Moses, a lot less me. And I just, I just was emotionally drained from the project. And I put it down for probably two or three months for that reason. And so she came back with her edits. So it's like, that's not, we're not going to do that. <laughs> I mean, so many words. And she was like, we need more of you. You need to finish this the same way you started. And I said to her, and I remember, (laughs) I remember um, saying to her in so many words, I'm like, look, you get white women bleeding all over the page and they become New York Times bestseller, right? You look at Brendan Brown and her work. I said, and I slit my wrist and bleed all the page. I said, like, nobody's going to be here to pick up pieces for me, right? So, um, and I told her that, and I wasn't free enough to go back to doing that until after I came back from Rwanda. You know, that, that trip was very healing. Um, and part of it was, you know, I went with a, with a group of black women, right? And so there was a lot of healing that took place there and there was safety there, right? To be my whole self, and struggle with all the things. So some of the things that I've written early on in the book and uh, to be cared for and loved well in that space. So I can come back and finish the project, you know, but, you know, it's just this weird thing. You've, you've written a book and it's like, like, I gave you that. <laughs> like, like, so you, you get that, right? And, and, and I think our culture, um, especially with the way social media runs, that there's always this demand for more. And it's like, well, I've, I've given you um, in obedience, what I feel the Lord has called me to give you at this time. And so go read that. <laughs> and, you know, that's that. Yeah. So I think we have to have safe places for ourselves. Um, we have to have healthy boundaries. And then we have to be clear on what it is the Lord has called us to do.
Is there a call? Um, do you sense a calling out out in the in the Christian bigger Christian world, big C Christian world, to figure out how those spaces can be created within communities of faith? Because there is a we we talk about and the the old quote and it could be anecdotal. You could confirm this on me about Sunday morning being the most segregated hour of the yeah. week. That seems to still be somewhat the case. Yeah. Uh, what What is the call right now for the Big C Church as far as creating safe spaces? Yeah, and I'll say the Big C American Church because yep. I, you know point. we are deficient as an American church is that we. You know, we as an American church, as a result of our American culture, are very individualistic, prideful, um, arrogant people, right? And so these are sins that we have to constantly denounce because it's such so much ingrained in our culture. And so the American church is no different than that, right? Um, and, and I say that because I think if we were more humble, then we would be learning more from the global church. Right. And so the message that we would listen to or hear or deliver to the global church is not the same with the message that we will hear from deliver from um, the to the American church. I think even right now, like they being and, and they're not a monolithic group either, but but just, you know, where the church is growing in like Asia, Africa, they're having different conversations than where we're having in America. Right. And I think if, if I can be quite honest. I think the church conversation we're having in America more often is, is like, what do I want to do? <laughs> right. And which is not really a holy conversation. Um, but that being said, um, I don't know, especially in this season, if I care a lot, whether the church is segregated on Sundays. Um, and I, and this is a person who grew up in a quote unquote traditional black church spent um, a good bit of time being uh, my, a racial ethnic minority in predominantly an all white church, and then spending the last you know half a decade or so in a multi ethnic um, ministry church context. And so right now, you know, my family just moved, and so we're still um, trying to settle into a church in our new home. Um, and, and we travel a lot too, so that's that's been a challenge. But I say that because even with the multi ethnic movement, the biggest Achilles heel that movement has is that most of those churches are still planted and led by white men. Mm, So the people of color that are there, um, oftentimes they are assimilating into a white culture. They are not um, their full selves in that space. Um, They are constantly, you know, in an upward struggle and fight to be heard. They have their voices heard. They have their culture understood. You know, if they worship a different way, the music, all those things, you will find by and large that people of color are giving up more than the white people in the space are. And I don't think that's particularly helpful or redemptive either. And so um, what I do care about and what I think is, is critically important for a church now, if we are going to lead and have some cultural influence and impact, and, and this is where I often go when I'm teaching and training, particularly church leaders, is like, what does Jesus say about Right. And so I, I have a tendency of uh, taking people always back to Jesus prayer in John 17. Right. That his prayer is not that we are uh, out of the world, but that we go into the world, that we are sanctified by truth. and His word is true. Right. And so I think I think this very real understanding of Jesus calling us to not isolate ourselves from the world, from people that even are not believers, um, but actually going into the world, being people who hold to the truth and being unapologetic in that. I think that's a really critical part of that prayer. And then, of course, he closes the chair with the, the prayer with the unity for us as believers, right? That we are one as he is one with his father and that our oneness is actually evidence that he has been sent. And so there needs to be something united, um, not saying, like oneness is not sameness, right? But that we can be together uh, I like to talk about this as as reading music or singing or you know whether it's an opera or or a choir or a band right that everyone's playing different notes but when it comes together that is very beautiful and Paul writes about this you know about our need for each other in First uh, Corinthians chapter twelve right that we all have different parts you know but one body one spirit 
is is in all and, and we can't say to the other part of the body that i don't need you i have no hope for you and so the body is the people of god it's not just the building on sunday and so i think we place a lot of emphasis on what happening on sunday and i'm not saying it's not important it is important but i really am more interested as a person who is a disciple follow jesus who really wants people to follow jesus and not just do stuff <laughs> right um uh, how we living day to day, like who, how are our relationships being formed in the day to day? Like, how are we relating? Like, are we really loving God and loving our neighbor in the day to day? Um, are we consistent in that? Do we have a care and concern for our neighbor? And we don't get to choose our neighbors, <laughs> right? Um, and those, those are the questions I, especially as a leader who cares about leadership and training leaders, I'm more interested in having those conversations and helping us grow in wisdom and knowledge and understanding um, and those things so we can live and love and lead well as mm. Christians. Because everything I look at historically, like that's the only thing that matters. Yeah, I want to pick up on the, you used the metaphor of the instruments and yeah. I want to pick up on the on the musical piece of that because one of the things you address in the book that I think is probably the bigger issue uh, from my vantage point is there's the possibility that there's somebody in the orchestra playing their instrument and playing their own piece that no one else is playing, but they are stubbornly sticking to that piece of music. Like, no, this, I mean, you guys are fine. I love all of you and I don't, I don't dislike you. I don't dislike how you play, but this is the piece of music. And so one of the things you talk about is the need for consciousness yeah. to be aware of. And throughout the book, the, not just in the title, but truth is a, such a huge piece of that. And so there's the word is truth. There's the logos idea that Jesus is this incarnate truth. Mm -hmm. But then there is also truth as in the reality of what's actually happening in the world. Right. And for me as a white male, most of what I've been doing recently is trying to hear the truth of other people's experiences, especially female and black folks that yeah, I don't, I don't know that piece of music, right. but I'm not going to sit here and pretend that just because I don't hate that piece of music, that there yeah. isn't some dissonance between them. So you talk about consciousness as a knowledge that leads to a necessary response. Yeah. So when we talk about things that have happened in the last few years, you mentioned uh, about 2015. And I just, I was shocked to think about how long that's been. <laughs> and just you know, because I'm always shocked about, you know, people are like, wow, that was a long time ago, the passage of time, but just the Confederate flag challenge and Bree Newsom climbing the flagpole and taking down the Confederate flag in South Carolina, but also mm -hmm. the shooting at the Baptist church. Yeah. How, what is the, what is the consciousness where are we being asked to be conscious of some things right now and to have that sort of knowing that leads to a response? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I think it, it, uh, quite, uh, quite frankly, I just think, I think we're, we're not, we're ignorant in a lot of things, right? Like, so, you know, again, like going back to Harriet movie last night, I didn't learn anything new, but I suspect that most people in that movie uh, learned things about her for the first time. And I would suspect if I were a guessing or betting woman that they knew her name and they know Rosa Parks' name. But when you think about historical African-American women, they could not probably write you more than a paragraph on any Black woman besides those two. Um, and I think that's problematic, right? Because what it says is, is that you know stuff. There are things that you're very intelligent and knowledgeable about, but it's not all the things, right? And so I think the what people of color, particularly those like myself, and if I were to find, I would say like people who are educated and well-read, um, you know, with quote-unquote white-collar jobs, uh, we are educated in all of those kind of American standard basics, <laughs> you know, which is what's acceptable for the dominant group to consider themselves half the way intelligent. Um, 
But then we have to do this other education for our own awareness, identity, value, worth, history. And so most of the time we're coming into these conversations just a lot more equipped um, because we've done the work. And I think that the sad and unfortunate thing is that, and reality is that um, I think white people need to do more work, <laughs> right? I, I think there's a certain level of expertise just by living and surviving as a person of color in America. Like if you haven't been shot, you know what I'm saying? It's like you've learned something along the way to keep yourself alive. And so, um, and that's just a, a survival instinct, right? And so I think that white people who don't have to think about those things, like what do you do if a cop pulls you over? Like you just never think about it. And so there's a certain lack of education you have um, because these are certain things you don't have to deal with. And so I submit that for someone who really wants to be conscious, that there needs to be an understanding that you have a lot of education, like a lot more work to do, whether that's reading or podcast listening or documentary watching or movie watching and having some really important conversations, not just with your friends that are people of color, but with each other, right? Like, oh, like, what are we, I think a lot of times we're not even asking the right questions, mm. right? Because yeah. you're playing your one note, but like, why are you playing that note? Like, what is that note doing for you? <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? So I think those are the things that really needs to happen. I, underneath that too, I sense that there's probably a fear that we'll stop playing my piece. And if I don't, if I'm not playing my piece, then, you know, I, I need to protect my piece of music. We may all metaphors break down. So I think we get to yeah. that point, but yeah. I think for some of us, it's a, it is a question of, well, what do I, what happens if I, if I don't play this piece anymore? And I love it's, the diff- it's an identity question, right? Like yeah. if, if I can't identify with this thing, but I don't have anything else to latch on to. Right. So you have that identity piece. And I think all of us as humans have to wrestle with that. Like, who am I? And again, this is an American thing. Who am I apart from what I do and what I'm connected to? Yeah. Um, I think that's an identity question. But I think, you know, the other question is and what, you know, this, if we are honest, like this fear of if I lose whatever this thing I'm so connected to. And that could be, you know, houses, car, land, spouse, job, right? Just pick your thing. But if I lose this thing that I'm so attached to, this fear of, then what's going to happen to me? Mm. And that's the fear, you know, that we don't want to deal with, we don't want to name, because there's no reality when you feel like a system is working for you, that it can actually be something on the other side that's better. That's a good word. So I was, I was breaking leaves the other day, and which is where all the best ideas come from. And uh, I had this thought, and it's something that I've heard other places. Um, but I wonder how much you would agree with this. Ha- has our emphasis in the evangelical Christian church in the United States, I appreciate your distinction on that earlier, has our emphasis on conversion like it's all about the conversion of the person. How has that affected our ability to be conscious of things that are not personal but systemic? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, 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 and you know, I, I'm in a doctorate program right now. Um, what am I? What's my program? It's something about leadership. And <laughs> it's so it's so good. It, it, it has completely captured you. <laughs> but yeah, I'm, I'm in a I'm in a doctorate program right now. Something about leadership and urban ministry, but. You know, I'm doing a lot of reading with that. Like, I just finished reading um, the good one about um, the American city in the evangelical church, right? And so this whole historical um, narrative and um, even the whole idea of fundamentalism and evangelism and, you know, kind of um, what, not only what they were trying to do, but what they're trying to protect and preserve. Right. And then, and so it always comes back to kind of like the individual salvation. And, you know, even look like at, you know, Billy Graham in his crusade phase. And, you know, we love Billy Graham. Right. Um, you know, it's like, like, get your soul saved. And I, th- I think that um, as a person who really cares about discipleship, I, once I've kind of gotten into this to understand like really what Jesus was calling people to. 
I don't think that evangelism is bad. I think evangelism is incomplete, is what I right. And so um, we know that salvation cannot be the end state because we don't die after we accept Christ, right? Because if he only wanted to get saved, it's like, well, well, I'm saved. I'm in. Take me on to heaven then. There's nothing else left really for me to do. I guess if you want to make the argument to keep advantage of other people. I mean, so I think there's, you know, there's value in that. So I don't want people to be like, I, I get it, people. Like, I read. Um, so I think that, um, but I also feel, again, this is kind of where the global thing. So in my first book, Mentor for Life, um, the subtitle, Finding Purpose Through Intentional Discipleship, I write about this early on. Dr. Brenda Sultan McNeil was writing about one of her experiences internationally, where, you know, people were offered the, the gift, quote unquote, of salvation, and um, no one made the decision that night. And a matter of fact, they were encouraged not to, because they said that, this is a very serious decision. And we want you to be very clear about what it is you're saying yes to and understanding, you know, what it is that you might have to give up by accepting Christ. You, you can't keep Christ and keep your other gods with a little G, right? You can't keep Christ and keep living, you know, your own way. And, you know, uh, Christ calls us this, right? To consider the count the cost of discipleship. If you love houses and land and your own family, even your own body more than than me, then you're not worthy, you know, of me. And so this whole idea, when you're living in a country where accepting Christ can actually cost you your life, you are more conscious and cognizant of um, this is a very serious decision. And I think where we err and where we fail in America a lot of times is that we want people to make a decision. They don't even know what they're, what you're asking of them, right? You're asking them to accept a God they don't know you know, a Christ they don't understand because they didn't get that in your 30-minute, three-point sermon. They didn't get it, right? They heard it, but they didn't get it. And so I think we rushed to that, quite frankly, because it's the expedient thing to do, and that's a cultural thing, too. What's harder, my friend, is actually spending time investing in a life, you know, teaching the word, holding people accountable. Lord, teach me how to pray. You're actually teaching them how to pray. Give them a chance to practice. Sending them out two by twos. Having them coming back and bring you a report. Correcting them. Sending them out again. Because this is what Jesus did, right? And Jesus did this with, you know, 12 people. One of them was a bad egg. It was a group of women, right? You know, about 20 folks consistently for about three, three and a half years. And here we are thousands of years later, billions of people following I am a very basic person in understanding that, like, that works. We have proof that that works. And so evangelism, just calling people and asking them to pray, I don't want to diminish that because I've done it a lot myself as far as, like, just in my personal group. Like, I've, I've, I've done the thing, you know, walk down the aisle and say the prayer and get baptized all the ways. Like, I've done it all the ways, right? Um, so I don't want to discount it. But I also want to challenge us and say, um, that's fairly easy, and I think it's very wrong to do that when people are coming in, they're really lost, they don't have a relationship with the Lord. Even though if they say the prayer, um, they haven't been taught how to follow. And so it's wrong to ask them to do that and then judge them and chastise them on the back end when we haven't taught them how to follow. And I, I, I want to see more believers that are dedicated and willing to do the hard work and in investing in small groups of people over a longer period of time so that people can actually become disciples of Jesus. Yeah. And it seems like the second step of that is people becoming disciples of Jesus personally necessarily leads them to begin to look at the world differently. Jesus talking about stepping into a new kingdom that you don't know. So ask the questions you need to ask, but that it produces this uh, spiritual pursuit that leads to righteous action. That being saved as a person, and choose your tradition. Everybody's got different language around that Christian tradition, should necessarily lead then to to say, okay, so now how do we respond to the things we know and Mm -hmm everything under the sun but specifically how do we now respond to the awareness that yeah we live in a christian culture that has participated in systemic racism and how, <laughs> because, because how do I we address there's, it yeah. there's no understanding not a overarching understanding 
within the American, which particularly within the American evangelical church, that God's kingdom, and you, you're going to share the message, right, is not of this world. And God's kingdom and the American empire are really in conflict with each other, right? And so when God is asking us to render unto God what is God and unto Caesar what is Caesar, um, that we really have to start then asking ourselves some hard questions, like what does that look like in my context? Um, what does that look like for me being a person of integrity who says that my allegiance is to God's kingdom? Like, and, and, and I don't know if everybody would say that. I don't know if every Christian would say that. Because they don't, again, they haven't been discipled well, so they don't even have a language for it. Yeah. I think this is an interesting thing for a lot of reasons, but to hear you talk about it specifically because so many people link American imperialism to military service. Yeah. And so to hear someone who has served deeply, I have a good friend who's also served, and to hear him speak in ways that are prophetically critiquing. Yeah the country in which he lives, it gives it so much more gravity. Like you've been in the depths of what it means to be a true quote unquote patriot. And there's nothing wrong with patriotism, but good patriots should be able to be critical as well, especially through the lens of the kingdom of God. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think that's been God's grace, even for me and, and my preparation as a leader and for the work that I do. Right. Because if I was just a black woman that had not done that, I would not be heard in the same way. Yeah. Yeah. I I heard an interview with Tanahasi Coates. Yep. And at the end they did a Q&A and he said, "Oh great, this is the part where you guys asked me to put a spin of hope on this thing." <laughs> he said, "I'm not going to be that guy. However, I'm going I am going to ask you to be that person because from the book I know that you uh have this within you. What what is what are the stories or what's a story that is giving you hope right now in this truth-telling, consciousness-seeking um, kind of Christian context that we're in. Yeah, I, I, uh, I want to be truthful, right? And I think it, the truth is, especially in the last few years, um, striving for hope has been a challenge. It's been a challenge. Um, and I think a large part of that has been a disappointment with the church. Not so much disappointed with, with God or you know, with, with Jesus, it's a disappointment with, with the church. Because I think when we get down to it, there's a lot, in some places there's not enough talk, but there are some places there's a lot of talk, but when it really comes down to action and what you're gonna do, are you actually gonna change? Are you actually gonna sacrifice? Are you just gonna give up something, right? I don't see those things happening um, as consistently as would if the Holy Spirit was at work. <laughs> um, and, um, and I believe the Holy Spirit is at work. I just think that um, we don't always yield to the work of the Holy Spirit that's happening in our lives. And so um, my, I, I, my only hope, my only hope, whether we see it on this end is questionable, is that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. I believe that at the very core of my being, and I think about, um, you know, when the disciples started to leave Jesus, and, you know, he looks at his, his core group and said, y'all gonna leave me too? And Peter's like, where else are we gonna go? Like, you alone have the words, you know, to eternal life. And like, and, and that's how I am. It's like, if I was not kept by the Holy Spirit, I probably would try to figure this out another way. But in my 40 years of living now, I don't, I don't believe there's another way. I don't believe there's another way. Um, and so for that, I journey, um, I continue to share the truth and seek to love God and, and neighbor. Because if not on this side, then certainly on the other, that all that is wrong shall be made right. Mm. Yeah. Well, thank you for that, because it's, it's just an example of how you've 
and in the book I see it, but also from knowing you personally, you, you hold together that authority and vulnerability and the honesty of a truth teller. And, and that's, I think what all of us need. Mm-hmm. Um, so thanks for being that person. Thanks for bringing your book into the world. It's, it's a gift to mm-hmm. all of us. So thank you for doing that. Thank you so much for having me and allowing me to speak to your people. conversation with Natasha there's just there's too much (laughs) there's just too much to unpack in there Uh, so I hope you'll listen to this episode again I know I will but I do think this idea of consciousness this idea of having knowledge I mean you listen to a conversation with someone like Natasha you now know a story a story of a person who has learned that sometimes when you go out of the house, you may not come back, and for no other reason other than the color of your skin. I hope that you will think about that, and specifically, where is God inviting you, as we use the metaphor together, she and I, of the orchestra playing the pieces of music, where is God inviting you to enter into that metaphor? Are you willing to play your instrument as a part of a bigger piece, even knowing that yours might be unique and distinct, It's all part of one big unified piece of music, and that oneness is not the same as sameness. Where is God inviting you to confront the fear that you have about losing that piece of music that is the only one you know how to play? And where might you experience amazing amounts of growth as a result of exploring those questions? Natasha Sistrunk Robinson is the visionary founder and chairperson of the 501c3 nonprofit organization Leadership Links Incorporated, where she cultivates a team of influencers who offer leadership, education that facilitates impactful living, character, and spiritual development. She's an anti-trafficking, uh, anti-human trafficking advocate, uh, facilitates conversations about living in a racialized society. And she talks about a lot about equity for women and the importance of education. As I said before, she's a graduate of the Naval Academy and is also a Marine Corps officer. Her book, A Sojourner's Truth, is available now. The link will be in the show notes as well. If you're listening on iTunes, thank you. Uh, if you've subscribed, thank you. If you haven't given a rating or a review to the show, I would love it if you do that. If you're listening on Spotify, you could do the same. If you're streaming on my website, thank you so much for that. So glad that you're listening. I can't wait to bring you another conversation next week. So until then, be well, live wisely. Peace, friends. <laughs>